Hello and welcome to another edition of Sporting Lives where we profile uh, the life in sport of a famous sportsman or sportswoman who served their particular sport with distinction. Now before I introduce this afternoon's guest, um, let me first thank the Coniston Hotel and a country estate where we're situated today. It's the first Sporting Lives in actual fact that has been on the road away from our Leeds studio. Thanks also to ICS Independent Content Services, Ian Holding, Julian Barnes and uh, Sam uh, Bridges as well for their assistance in putting this together. So to our intro. Um, a lady who is very interesting, uh, as I'm sure we're going to find out, an Oxford graduate, uh, a real passion for the horses, uh, led her to um, train point-to-pointers, having had a career as a teacher prior to that, uh, or maybe at the same time, we'll find out. And then, of course, moving into the world of national hunt racing, where she trained over 700 winners in uh, a great association with her sadly now past uh, husband, Terry Biddlecombe, three-time uh, champion jump jockey himself back in the 1960s. Uh, and most notably, of course, three Cheltenham Gold Cups with the great best mate, one of only four horses to have done that feat in the history of national hunt racing. Edradon Blur as well, another name that's never too far from the lips. When you mention her name, and she's still involved with the horses now, even though that trainer's license was handed in, what, a few years ago. Welcome, Henrietta Knight. Good afternoon. So, um, great pleasure for me to talk to you. Having seen you on the box so many times, talking about those great horses and seeing you with Terry and that wonderful relationship, everybody called you the odd couple uh, back in those days. We'll talk about that in a little while. But first, can we wind the clock back? The passion for horses, from where did that come in the first place? It was always with me. As a child, I was mad about ponies. I think I rode my first pony when I was three. And I was always had this fascination for ponies and horses. Even when I used to go up in the train to London with my parent, my mother, I would be looking across the fields to see what horses were turned out in which fields and spot the horses. And so were you riding from a, a young age? Yes, we're lucky. We lived on a farm and my mother was a good rider and she, she taught me from an early age had a very naughty Shetland pony and then a series of fairly naughty ponies, all of which were unbroken really when we got them, but Mum and I, she just sort of broke them in as I rode them. And um, also donkeys. And uh, my sister and I, just the two of us, we had a lot of fun um, training these donkeys for the local donkey derbies. And uh, we were quite successful with our first winner I ever had was in the Donkey Derby. Mm -hmm. But then we rode and did all the pony club things. I went to a day school, so I came back every evening and rode my pony. And I used to go out in those days in the dark evenings with the stirrup lights on my stirrups, little bulbs of, you know, little torch lights, so I could see a little bit further. And nobody worried where I was in those days, no my mobile phones. My mother never seemed to bother that I'd just disappeared, come back from school and disappeared. And I was often out for two or three hours and came back about half past seven or something like that. So it was clearly always there and, and do you think that you know, relating that to your to your subsequent training career then, that you had that just the innate understanding of horses and what they need? 
Yeah, I think it's fair to say probably I do have a way with animals and a way with horses, which I'm lucky to have inherited from my mother. She could do anything with them. And she'd probably taught me, and I probably have a little bit in my blood. And uh, it's, they just, it always is with me, and every, everything I do with horses, I, have na I find it comes naturally. Uh, so, I'm obviously aware as well, didn't mention in the intro, remiss of me, folks, but um, you were also known for your own equestrian exploits. Um, I think it was badminton horse trials I was reading about in preparation for this. Um, the year that Lucinda Pryor Palmer first well, won she, it? She won it six times, but it's one of the years, 1973, when she won it in a horse called Be Fair. Um, I was given a, an ex-point-to-point -point horse, which funnily enough came from Yorkshire, from the Birtwistles. And Monica Dickinson was a Birtwistle, it was from her brother. And um, he was not a very fast point-to-pointer, -point but he had won a point-to-point, -point, very safe jumper a great time riding him. And was that, so that, what was the build-up like to that? Because I guess you'd have to do that sort of thing around studies and clearly you were very bright, um, but, but there's still quite a lot of commitment in that respect as a young person. Well, when I did the badminton horse trials, I, by that time I'd got to the stage where I was teaching in a school. Um, my parents said to me, it was no good growing up without some kind of purpose. And so we both decided we'd better train for some kind of a profession. And I trained as a teacher, and my sister trained as a nurse. And it was quite convenient teaching because the school was only two miles from home. And I would slip home in the lunch hour and um, ride or supervise people <laughs> with the horses at home and then nip back to school in the afternoon. And also quite a number of the girls in the school were keen on riding. And they supported me when I went to badminton, but it was, it fitted in really well with mine. The two lives sort of interlocked. Oxford, tell me a bit more about that and how was that for you? Well, it all sounds rather grand that I got an Oxford degree, but I have got an Oxford degree, but it didn't really take much time as part of the university because when you're teach doing a teacher's training course, you just do a fourth year to get a teaching degree. And I was attached to one of the men's colleges, Exeter, um, in Oxford, and went, went to lectures there. Um, but Oxford's one of my closest towns, and I know Oxford fairly well. So that all fitted in very nicely. I mentioned the point-to-point -point as well. I think over 100 winners or so as a point-to-point -point trainer. What period was that then? Well, during my teaching, um, I also um, <coughs> had quite, a, quite good long holidays. And during the holidays, my, our next-door neighbour was a, a very good trainer called Captain Tim Forster, who trained three Grand National winners. He was a very good friend of my parents. And um, he let me have some of his horses, to, um, young horses, to break in and play around with. I don't know how he trusted somebody as young as me, but he did. And I learnt a lot from riding these young horses. And also we have a, which is still used today, this amazing uh, thing called a jumping school, a loose jumping school. And trainers would send their horses over to jump in the school. And at that time I had I was running the same time as teaching and riding my own event horses. I had a small livery yard. So I was doing sort of three th three things at the same time. And um, one of the trainers who sent me horses was uh, Fred Winter, champion trainer. Mm -hmm. So I got to see what um, horses of the highest quality looked like. And 
got my eye in with bloodstock. And it was, although I vented and enjoyed the point to pointing, because I'm not riding in point to points, but the training side of it, it was getting a trainer's license that I really wanted all the time. And I was, and also I love buying and selling horses because I love horses and judging them. So it was a great sort of determination and longer term goal about all those things. Just as an aside, folks, because uh, Hen mentioned um, Captain Tim Forster, um, I went to the 1985 Grand National. That was my first Grand National uh, live, if you like. I can't tell you how old I was, but I was in my teens at the time. And uh, we were queuing, my, my friends and I, um, down the end, whatever it is, very close to the race course, just the last little bit, and it was nose to tail. And a car went flying by down the um, hard shoulder, as they had in those days, and then a blue flashing light followed it. And of course we edged forward and edged forward and edged forward. And eventually we're alongside this car that's been stopped. And my friend in the front said, JD, I recognize that guy. It was just beginning getting his orders from the police. What's he called? And I said, uh, oh, it's Hewell Davies. Um, and he said to me, uh, oh, what's he riding in the big one today? So I looked at the racing post or whatever it was then. And I said, oh, he's riding no skull. Last suspects, no chance. <laughs> Oops. Um, Fifty to one, I think he won at that day. So uh, sorry to interject with that, but it just mm -hmm. triggered off that that racing memory and um, probably shows me up for what I am as a tipster. Um, uh, from your perspective, um, clearly um, getting going in point to points and then taking out that license in in the late eighties. By this time, you've also met Terry. Uh, no, I think Terry till the nineties. Oh, it was the early nineties. My apologies for that uh, lack of chronological knowledge. He had come and done, and um, he was working for Central Television at the time, and he was doing a program called Terry's Tips, and uh, he had made a visit to where I had my livery yard to film me because he was asked to go around the countryside and do some films on people in racing or connections with racing, and um, wasn't very impressed the first time he saw me. <laughs> I turned up in this little sort of blue, looked like a nurse's dress and um, high heel shoes to walk around my yard with the horses rather than my normal <laughs> clothes for the yard with the trousers, the jeans and the... and uh, I think he thought I was half mad. <laughs> we tried to break in a horse in my arena in the garden when I showed him how we put the saddles on and let the horses loose to get used to the saddle. And this particular horse, which actually turned out to be quite a good horse that Tim Forster then trained and won races with, he did a few bucks with the saddle and burst the girth and the saddle went flying into the air. And um, then by the time we caught the horse, put the saddle back on, I think Terry thought this was lunatic. <laughs> oh, so he often refers to it, referred to it. Didn't get off. Uh, things didn't get off quite on the right footing. They then, didn't get off to a flying start. No, uh, but clearly they did. Uh, would you say then that I mean, clearly you were you had a talent for horses, working with horses. You proved that as well in the point-to-point -point field. Do you think that you would have been as successful as you were anyway without Terry by your side, or did that put the ante, if you like? Not with the training license. No, I mean he was he was my other half, I couldn't have done it on my own. And the knowledge that he had about national hunt racing and the knowledge he had about how jockeys should ride races and about the courses, most of which he'd ridden out himself, was invaluable. 
and also having been in the top yards like Fred Rymel and Fort Warwin, he'd seen proper um, National Hunt horses, proper chasers, and uh, he knew when they were fit, and they knew how they should be going, and he knew how they should be jumping. Rode uh, some real top horses, didn't he? As you say, Woodland Venture won the Gold Cup, 67 yeah, or 68. Um, gay Trip as well in the Grand National, mm. although he I don't did, think he that did ride Gay Trip in the Grand well. National. Well, he did, he was second in the Grand National, yeah. yes. But he didn't win the Grand National, it was Tom Taff won the Grand yeah, National. Yeah, on him, yeah. yeah. Pat Taff. And, um, yes, he Great Trip won the Maxton on several occasions, didn't he? Yeah. Um, I remember, I just remember Terry from the BBC broadcast of the of the 70s when he was part of the team, wasn't he, with uh, the Bill Smiths and mm. Julian Wilson and of course the great... And David uh, Moulds. The late great Sir Peter, yeah, and David Mould and, and Richard Pittman, as we mentioned uh, earlier on as well. Good days, learning your racing, watching people like that, clearly with the knowledge, you know, and that was one of the things from my point of view where Dad was sitting there telling me who these men were because he'd obviously experienced watching them race ride live, whereas... I was just a nipper. And you couldn't see them as clearly as we all see them <coughs> today because there were no, um, there were no proper, so uh, what do you call it, internal televisions, what do you call them? You know, um, there was no social media. Yeah. There were no, there were no racing channels, so you had to really look at them with your own eyes and pick it up yourself. Mm -hmm. And when you see some of the old footage, actually, of the old gold cups where the camera is a distance really from the horses by comparison to what it is now. It does feel strange when you look back on some of that old footage. Nonetheless, very nostalgic and great. I was only watching the Dickler and Pendle, I think, the other day. Um, so let's th talk about then thing, how things build during your, your training career because you've got to buy horses, you've got to have the eye to go and do that, or you've got to have good associations. I know you've got a good association with the Costello family in Ireland. Was that always something that you drew upon from the word go as a trainer? Um, no, that really developed when Terry came on the scene and um, he was a very good friend of Josh Gifford's and Josh Gifford used to buy from the Costellos and so he said we better go and see this Costello family because Josh has always been talking about them and then we um, went to old Tom Costello who's sadly not with us anymore and from there it snowballed we bought some superb horses from their yard, and I still do buy from the yard. Um, there's three, four, five brothers, and they have a great eye for a horse, and they buy them as foals, they don't breed any. And they've, um, some great horses have gone through their hands. I think seven different Gold Cup horses have gone through their hands. Yeah, a phenomenal record, isn't it? Okay. So from that point, things build up very nicely, and you, come across a horse by the name of Best Mate. Was he named at the time? How, tell us how you got um, how you got him, how you acquired him. It was a super name, wasn't it? Um, the Costellos had named him. They only re really name their horses if they're going to point to point them. Otherwise they sell them un unnamed youngsters. And Terry and I were doing our, one of our usual visits to an Irish point to point and uh, watching them walk around in the paddock beforehand and it was the one of the worst days on record. It was lashing rain. It was so muddy that the horses could hardly walk from where they were saddled up on a dry piece of roadway to the paddock in the horse boxes. Um, and this horse just walked round in the four-year-old maiden race as though he owned the place with his head held high and looking at everything. And he just stood out from the others. There were probably only about nine runners. 
both Terry and I were taken by him. And Terry was probably one of the best race readers I've ever come across. And he was he used his binoculars on everything. And he uh, watched the horse throughout the race. It did a circuit and a half and pulled up and cantered back fresh as paint. And um, after he said, there was only one horse in that race. I'm the best mate. He said, we should buy that horse. He said, I watched it. He said, he just had a nice education. Anyway, the costlers are very clever and they won't sell a horse unless it wins a race or unless it, at least unless it finishes a race. Profit. That, and that was only just a sort of a, a fitting race, warm up. So they wouldn't sell it that day. And then three weeks later, it ran again in a two horse race in the north of Galway and um, beat a mare. <laughs> and as soon as we heard it had won, we happened to be in Ireland again at another point to point. We hadn't actually got wind of the fact that it was running in this race, but we were nearly the first people there in the yard that next day. And I think there were quite a number of people hot on the, the wires to buy him. Um, but we got first refusal of him, and we bought another horse as well called Be My Manager, who turned out to be quite a good horse too. We bought both these four, we were first refusal on both these four-year-olds until I got home, and then I got in touch with Jim Lewis, and we got went over there and bought him. What did what money changed hands for best mate? Well, it was, it was I don't know the exact price because Jim and Tom had a sort of little conflab in Tom's house, but I would say it was round about the ninety-five thousand mark. Okay, that's a pretty good bargain in the end, isn't it? With three gold cups, King George's. If you compare them with what the point-to-point horses are being sold for now. Yeah, phenomenal amounts of money. As, of course, you yourself were in the ring, weren't you, Cheltenham, in December. We maybe touched mm-hmm. on that again in a moment or two. But let's talk best mate, because everybody, we all love best mate, don't we? That, that sort of build-up to uh, winning his first Gold Cup, I can remember being in company that day. I wasn't at Cheltenham, actually, the day he won the first Gold Cup. And I didn't think he'd get home up the hill. I hand on heart, mm-hmm. and I've watched a lot of racing, but I'm clearly not as good a judge as you are, Terry. That's exactly what AP thought when he rode him and was beaten on him at um, Kempton the first time in the King George. He didn't think he was a true three miler, and Terry said he was a three mile plus horse. He should have made more use of him at Kempton, and he always says that now. Interesting as well, isn't it? and that that also, I suppose, um, leads us into horses and jockeys and that combination and are there certain jockeys that suit horse, certain horses better than others? Was was Jim Cullity just better suited to best mate maybe than AP? He was because the horse you couldn't, you had to ask him the things rather than tell him and um, he was such a good jumper that the, you needed to just sit very quiet on him and let him just, the fences just come to him and Terry, Terry sort of trained Jim to ride him in the races the way he thought he should be ridden. He hardly ever rode him at home, because jockeys aren't much good on the horses at home, I don't think, when they're galloping. And they, they, ask, they f- try to find out too much. Mm-hmm. He had a good girl that rode him at home, Jackie Jenner. And um, then Jim was allowed to ride him when it came to a race. When AP rode him, he was a bit too forceful on him. And... Um, he wasn't really the jockey for best mate. He was the jockey for Edredon Blur, but not for best mate. And I think the, the second time he won, 
on him, when he won on him at um, Kempton, the King George, he, he did listen to Terry a bit more that day. Yeah, um, it was a, a different ride, wasn't it? The first Gold Cup with Jim on board, you just remember, you can still see the images of a horse who, I can't think he touched a twig, he seemed to meet every uh, fence on a stride, um, and he absolutely devoured the ground up the hill, mm. contrary mm. to some of our opinions. Well, he loved Cheltenham. He won his first bumper at Cheltenham. Terry says he should have won the Supreme Novices the next time he went there. He was beaten into second by Noel Mead's horse. I can't remember what the name of the horse was now. And, uh, and then basically every time he went back to Cheltenham, he won. He just loved the place. And he loved the, the, the crowds. I think some horses are shy of crowds and somehow horses absorb the atmosphere and enjoy them and he certainly enjoyed them. What's it like for you in terms of tension? You're going into your first Gold Cup, you've always loved horses, you've got this brilliant specimen on your hands. It, at the time, I guess, the pressure might not have been quite as high. I think it was seven to one when he won first time, so it wasn't mm. favourite, about third, fourth in the market, something like that, but still. There was a bit of pressure the first time, but I thought possibly he was only seven, that we were asking a bit too much for me to go there anyway, but no, no, Terry thought we were doing the right thing. And there wasn't a lot else we could have chosen to do that year. So it was worth giving, giving it a crack. And Terry was always convinced he'd run well. And he didn't show much surprise, not nearly so much surprise as I showed. And of course then the second year, there was a lot more tension, and the third year, you know, it was the atmosphere was unbelievable. It was electric. Yeah, I mean, the sec for me, I guess um, the second year kind of stands out just as much, if not more, than the third. I think that's born out of the fact that being born in a generation where I was a little bit too young to remember Lethgargo winning it twice, and nothing else had ever won it twice in my lifetime watching racing. And I thought I would never see the day when a horse won back-to-back -back Gold Cups. So I could remember goosebumps when he came up the hill second time. And I think you'd have, you've got to argue that that was his best performance. Mm, that was the best one, I Just think. ran away with the race, didn't he? Mm. Then now all the, um, all the ones who want to knock the form say they didn't beat a great deal. But it was the way he did it. It was his style of running and the, his tenacity up the hill. Um, okay, nobody took him on. If they were so much better in the country, they should have taken him on. It just always looked like he was enjoying himself and it, it was a good job he did enjoy Cheltenham because that third one was then, as you say, all the tension and the pressure. I know he didn't know what price he was, but that was probably the hardest work of the three. It was because they, they, they shut him in on the corner and he had to come out. And then he had to, once he jumped to the front though, the last, he knew where he was going. And I don't think Jim saw Andrew Thornton with Sir Rembrandt. Um, yeah. So I think he, you know, he was creeping up on the right. It was, it was a lot closer than people realised. Mm. Yeah, a few more strides and that could have been interesting. It's one of those where mm. you're glad that they pay on the jam stick, mm. as um, Richard Pittman usually says. Uh, great, great days. Um, anything that we don't know about those days in terms of your memories, those personal ones? I think they've been pretty well documented those days. Everything we did was the same, very superstitious. I watched it from the same place. Um, people always used to think I'd hide in some kind of a room. They used to think I was hide in the ladies' loo, which is the last place anybody would want to hide. And I didn't used to hide. And 
the gold cups I watch from the fresh room every year, just behind the weighing room, and uh, did the same thing every year. It was the last year there was probably a lot more tension because everybody knew where I'd be, in particular Mick Easterby, and he got in there with a running commentary. <laughs> <laughs> Always a joy, Mick, yeah. Uh, um, uh, I see quite a lot of them in the summer with his uh, ice cream usually dribbling down his front. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so clearly stellar days and then that awful day, which we can't really not touch on at Exeter. Mm. Uh, a track that if he loved Cheltenham, he certainly also probably loved Exeter in equal measure. You know, a nice stiff track, his Holden Gold Cups um, and just remember watching that race and you still feel emotional about it now and I had no connection with him other than being a fan of the, of the horse so so for you that must have been absolutely gut-wrenching. Yes I'm quite lucky and I can at the time I was, I was so sort of numbed by it all that I didn't probably show it too much emotion outwardly because I haven't been brought up with animals all my life and seen the things that can happen to them and the tragedies and I know, you know, if an accident happens to a horse, it's, it, that's just one of those things if we're dealing with horses. But it was pretty, pretty gutting to see him. I knew when he came towards me, when Paul Carberry pulled him up and was trotting back towards me, because I was down on the course. I knew when he was wobbling that he was far from right. And, um, and I knew that he was having he was having a heart attack, having ridden one myself had a heart attack, and uh, soon as soon as he was on the floor, I knew that was it. But um, it was the most appalling shock. Th at that moment, she'd almost sort of blanked out everything else, blanked out the people, blanked out the racing, and it just it was just a horse had died in front of me, and um, it wasn't until a few days later that it really hit me. Tragic day, and I mean, I, I always felt as well for Paul Carberry because you think about uh, Matey's great association with Jim. Um, for Paul to be the man on board that day as mm -hmm. well, after this horse, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a racing legend, isn't he? He's, he's, his name will never be um, expunged from the record books for what he's There's done. Um, uh, Timmy Murphy couldn't ride him because he was riding for David Johnson, and he'd ridden him to win at Exeter before. Jim was injured, and, or banned, I can't remember which, but he couldn't ride him anyway. Didn't AP ride in the same race on something else? AP was on one of yeah. Martin Pipes. Yeah. And um, there was, you know, there was, it was, who do we have to ride this horse? Who's, and I always thought Paul Carberry's one of the best riders that ever rode in a race, and he, I still think that. It was just very unfortunate for him the way it went. Yeah. Let's um, refresh our memories then on brighter things. And you are, by the way, watching Sporting Lives. Myself, Jonathan Doidge, and my special guest today, Hen Knight, trainer of Best Mate, who's just been saying three gold cups. Um, thanks again to the Coniston Hotel and Country Estate for allowing us to film this here. And also, once again, to ICS. You can follow me on at Jonathan Doidge or get in touch if you've got suggestions for future guests on jonathandoidge at hotmail.com. So, Hen, um, Edred on Blur. I'm going to throw that name out there, just look, hang him out there like that, because uh, absolutely bags of pace, great heart, 
Um, he wins a championship race over two miles and a championship race over three miles. You can tell me about the differences between training him for one and the other, but what a ride. You think about that ride that AP McCoy gave him at Chelm. That was unbelievable. Probably one of the best rides AP ever gave any horse. I mean, he literally picked him up um, and took him over the line because he was headed by a direct route mm. on the run-in. But he said he had bags of pace. That's why you're wrong. He didn't have bags of pace. No. How do you win a two-mile champion chase without that? On his jumping. He was so quick over his obstacles and so quick away from them that he was running again when the other horses were still jumping. And um, it was all on the jumping that he won his races. Uh, at home, when we used to gallop him, he was incredibly slow. Um, and if we used to have a, find a quite a, a slow three-mile chaser to work with him. He used to get very downhearted because he went for a the better horse and the other horse put his head in front. Edward Dombrew got very depressed and disappointed and would just drop the bridle. And yet AP, AP kept him interested, you know, the, throughout the entire race, as you said, direct route, who was no mug himself, was he? He was involved in some mm. big finishes in two-mile chases over several seasons. And Norman Williams did drop his stick. All right. Um, but there's no excuse, really. I mean, AP was... Brilliant. Uh, he's very brilliant best. And then compare that to to his, uh, his win in the, the King George. and That was sort of, in a way, a bit like Desi winning for the first time, where everybody said there's no way he's going to stay three miles. And 25 to 1, I think, by that mm. stage, four we, months, things haven't been going that well. We'd run him before in the King George, and he hadn't stayed. And Terry said, if we'd run him differently, he would stay. And that was to run him from the front, or very near the front, which the horse loved because he liked to be liked to be able to dominate. As I say, he didn't like other horses to keep passing him. Yeah. And so I think it's like surprised the rest of the jockeys because I don't think they believed that when he was out there in front that he was ever going to stay and they'd get to him. But it was amazing they didn't get to him. No, oh, was a, another uh, fantastic day, and then. I guess that association with Jim Lewis comes to an end. You've been it's been well documented what you said about that and your disappointment um, on that front. How difficult was it in those last few years then before the license went back in um, to to keep going and to and to sort of I guess stay motivated when you'd had those quality of horses. Well, obviously, if you have horses like the two you mentioned, you have your your name in the limelight all the time because those are the horses that the public see and the public want to see and that people talk about. And you need, a, every yard needs a horse, it's a shop window. But when they, uh, when obviously they'd finished their racing careers, it was more difficult to pick up and start again. And also, Terry began to get ill and we were having less winners and basically our operation was not doing as well as it had done, which is really one of the reasons I gave up. Well, Terry, when Terry was ill, I handed him my licence. And it was, you know, you, you could, I would never turn back the clock. I would never want to start again, because those were wonderful days. And I was incredibly lucky to have had them and to have had horses like that to train. Clearly, We'd all wish the result, as far as Terry's concerned, would have been different. But that aside, any regrets from that period and training? No, I don't think I have any regrets because I've always been very lucky to have had the facilities I had at home 
which was just an old-fashioned farm that we converted into a training place for horses and to have the support of all the people around me and I had some fantastic owners and my family and uh, if I hadn't had them behind me we would never have done what we did. Um, I really don't think I have any regrets because everything I did then was kind of a stepping stone to the things I'm now doing which is what I always wanted to do was to buy more horses and look at more horses because it's the horses confirmation and makeup which fascinates me and the pedigrees and uh, for a time when Terry died, Terry died six years ago I, it was about three years of quite quiet time and empty um, stables and nothing much going on but I decided to write my books about what we had done and then get out <laughs> and do my um, investigations at how other people train because we never did have the time to do that when we were training so I, on my own I ventured out I went to see the, as many trainers as I could and as many jockeys as I could how they do, how they train differently England and Ireland and how the jockeys all started which of course is um, all about uh, what the book is all about behind us at the moment starting from scratch if you haven't got a copy then uh, there's a few here actually um, but I'm sure they're still available in all good bookshops or whatever they, uh, they say these days. But interesting that you do that. I mean, what a great thing to be able to do. That's something that any of us who love our racing, I'm sure, would be would love to be able to, to go and get involved in and look around the various different yards. What did you find then, particularly from a, a trainer's perspective, um, when you went elsewhere? Well, I had the most amazing reception from all the trainers. They were, they were welcoming and helpful. And they told me a lot of things which I couldn't put in books, I can tell you that. <laughs> um, but I, um, I was fascinated by it. And I made a lot of new friends as a result. And got to know a number of the trainers who had only just been people I'd passed on the race course. And it was, it was, it was fascinating. So has that led to you now buying horses that... They, there's an uptake from any of these people? Has it fostered that sort of thing for you? Are they going to do what? Uh, has it led to you buying horses that these trainers then will take on board? Mm, I mean, some of the horses I've been buying for people now, they go to an, a variety of different trainers, yep. um, most of which have been in the book. And some of the owners who asked me to buy horses have already got horses with one or two of these trainers. And then I get asked to find another horse, or to go to the, go and look at horses with them. Some of the trainers ask me. And do you uh, are people patient in that respect? Let's, for example, say you you go half a dozen horses, um, and none of them turn out to be much good. Would your judgment then be questioned? Would, well, it certainly people... would be. I think I'd end up in the Tower of London. <laughs> right. At those prices, yeah. <laughs> um, so, t so talk to me about the one. Uh, I think it was the Cheltenham December sale last year when. You went to £450,000, was it? Yes, it, was, it surprised me even, the amount of money he went for, but compared to what Best Mate for, went, went for in his day, he'd done more or less the same as Best Mate. Um, he's a lovely big horse. He won't be on a race course until next autumn, but he's a fine horse and a fine jumper. And by the stallion Getaway, who is having winner after winner, mm. and the stallion I particularly like, and strangely enough, when I did my research, I found that as a foal, he'd been bought by the Costellos from the breeder. Mm. 
Yeah. I didn't buy him from the costlers, I bought him at the sale from the owner. Yeah, but that link up once again with the, the cost yeah. of our family. I'm a very superstitious person, and I'm a great believer in fate. And um, I'm a believer in fate that the man who I bought it for came up to me at the races ten months ago, Mike Grip, and asked me to, or trusted me to buy him horses. And he'd done plenty of research, and he'd have thought I'd be the person for him. Quite a bit older than him, mind you, but... Uh, <laughs> Keep you busy. Yeah, your reputation precedes you, or preceded you, as they say. So, uh, have we got a name for this horse yet? Do we? Oh, no. he was yes, because he, he he'd won a point to point. Right, it's called Galley Hill. Galley Hill, of course, yes. Mm. I do remember reading that now. So, um, uh, who's he gone to? Do we know? He's with Nicky Henderson. Right. Okay. So it's not in bad hands then. No, not too um, bad, really. Uh, no. he, uh, got, he got some kind of a chance to be there. Mm. Um, he might be, uh, maybe eventually a 140 plus something like that. Yeah, well, he might, he might, we might, might win a few races. Might win a race or two. Okay. Well, listen, that, I hope that goes really well. Um, just before we finish, really, just to, uh, your thoughts on the racing industry now, 30 years or so after you first took out a full training license, is it, is it in a better place? I think there's a lot of things which are very worrying with the current day racing. I know that the, the biggest stress of all, of all time is on animal welfare, but it's difficult to know where, the, where to draw the line. And I think some of the, well, I'm not a, a fan of the BHA, as probably everybody knows that. I wrote, we wrote, I wrote a letter at one point. And I do think that there are too many people at the top who aren't really closely linked with their own experiences in the sport and they don't talk to enough people in the sport, jockeys, trainers, and get opinions. They just form their own opinion from the top. And uh, I wish that there would be more communication if they are going to make the rules with the people who are actually training the horses, riding the horses, and working with them every day. That's one of the things. I worry about the constant dispute on the whip. I hate the whip. I don't go as far as John Frankham as to say it should be abolished because I think you need a whip on a horse even when the days are breaking in young horses. A whip is a good guide, guide for a horse and sometimes a horse needs a couple of quick smacks just to sharpen it up. But I deplore the overuse of the whip and I think it's putting racing in a very bad light for people that don't understand it enough putting on the with all the social media and the television all they see is horses being hit and it's the wrong perception there's been a recent move hasn't there a discussion about um, disqualifying horses from winning a race mm. where would you stand on that i think it's the only th only way forward unless you can t you disqualify a horse and involve more than the jockey it's going to involve the trainer and the owner which means that they're going to be much tougher on their jockeys. Yeah. It's the only way it'll go on like this. Um, there have been some shocking cases lately, I've been on the flat as well. And they've, they've, got to make a, they've got to make some changes. It's no good saying they mustn't hit them more than X number of times, because you can hit them that number of times, but some of them is maybe severe hits and some of them may not. Yeah. It's got to be disqualification of the horse. So BHA, better communication and better um, cooperation, if you like, in tandem with people involved in the racing game themselves, 
Hen Knight, it's been an absolute pleasure to sit and talk uh, racing with you for the last whatever it's been, half hour or so. Many thanks for your time and being my guest on well, Sporting Life. Very much enjoyed it. I'd like to have sat here for another hour and talked to you. Lots <laughs> more to talk about. Thanks, Hen. So, once again, thanks for watching or listening if it's uh, the audio format uh, that you're with us on. Um, I'm Jonathan Doyle. This has been Sporting Lives, and do stick around for more stellar sporting guests um, in the coming months and years ahead. <laughs>